Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Live shows, Broadway musicals, theme parks, interactive experiences, merchandise galore. As fewer and fewer people head to the cinema, movie studios are piling into every way imaginable to squeeze more money out of their storylines. And the world of sport loves to see a winning streak or to commiserate about a long string of losses. Our correspondent says a new film casts light on the psychology of momentum in sport, either up the league tables or down. But first... Three years ago this week, Alexei Navalny, Russia's long-suffering opposition leader, returned to his home country. He'd been recuperating in a hospital in Germany after being poisoned with a nerve agent. On landing in Moscow, he was immediately arrested and ended up in prison on trumped-up charges. Since then, he's managed to get sporadic messages out, each time resolute and defiant, but also even cheery. Then, in October, his lawyers, among his only human contacts, were arrested. In early December, his aides ominously said he had disappeared from a prison near Moscow. But this month, he turned up again in a video as part of court proceedings, appearing from his new cell in a remote penal colony. His message, his affect, all pretty much unchanged, which for many was a relief. The most important thing was that he actually did appear on that screen. He's been missing for more than two weeks when he was transferred from his previous prison to this one in the Arctic Circle called the Polar Wolf Colony. Arkady Ostrovsky is our Russia and Eastern Europe editor. And he appeared on the video screen in a court hearing as ever looking cheerful, although quite gaunt. But the fact that he was alive and he was standing, even that was good news to his family and to his followers. The last time we spoke to you about Mr. Navalny, it was when he was essentially cut off from his lawyers. How has that story progressed? That's right, Jason. So three of Navalny's lawyers have been arrested and they're still in detention awaiting trial that could take months. One of his other lawyers was allowed to leave the country. He does have other lawyers now who go and see him. 
his staff has managed to locate him in two weeks. It could have taken a lot longer. One thing that Russia is not short of is the number of penal colonies. And each single one of them had to be contacted to see if Navalny was there. So his lawyers, I think, have been working 24-7. And from what we understand, he does have lawyers visiting him. Although, obviously, it's much, much harder to go to the Arctic Circle to see him than it was when he was in Vladimir, which was much closer to Moscow. And how has he been maintaining contact with the rest of the outside world? So we don't exactly know how this happens. The reason his previous lawyers ended up under arrest is that they were charged with basically sharing his extremist, as the Russian state says, views. And of course, isolating Navalny is absolutely the prime goal of all this repression. Navalny has a very wide following. He is number one opposition politician. Isolating him, preventing him from communication to the outside world is essential for the Kremlin. And it's just as essential for Navalny to keep up that communication. How he manages to get his messages out on Twitter, that's probably through letters, through other contacts. It's basically kept under wraps. We, we don't exactly know how. What we do know, however, it is Navalny who's writing it. And some of the communications, of course, is what he says in court hearings. But as you say, he is getting his message out one way or another onto Twitter, now X. What sorts of things is he talking about? So his last communication was his letter written on the occasion of the third anniversary of coming back to Russia. I was actually on that flight with him exactly three years ago when he flew back to Moscow after being treated for Novichok poisoning in Germany. And he was arrested at passport control and he's been in jail ever since. And ever since, I think he been asked the same question. Why did you come back? Why did you do it? And at the same time, Navalny basically says in his letter, this is bewildering him. How difficult is it to understand for people that he came back because it's his country? And as he put it, if your beliefs are worth anything, you should be ready to stand up for them and if necessary, make sacrifices. This is a very, very important point he is making. And I think what makes him not despondent exactly, but angry is all the cynicism and all the corruption, not just economic or financial corruption, but the moral corruption. And along the way, has he said anything about his own situation, though, his detention? This is the man who spanned 225 days in solitary confinement. So this is really torturous conditions where he is uh, basically constantly subjected to hunger, to cold, and deprived of communications and deprived of books. And this has become now a new cause in this three years of his campaign. In his latest appearance in court, when we saw him, he didn't talk about politics. He didn't talk about some grand things. He talked about something incredibly specific. He talked about how prisoners need to be allowed two books in their cells rather than one. It's the small things in Russian jail, tiny things in Russian jail, that tips you from surviving and not surviving. You are on such an edge of human existence that, as Navalny describes his books, it's having a newspaper. This tells you a lot about the conditions in which he is kept. This tells you a lot about the sacrifice he's making. This also tells you a lot about 
how in the past three years, I would say Navalny's focus has shifted from politics in the way that we understand it to the most fundamental human rights of prisoners. And I think prison strips you down to the absolute basics. But is Vladimir Putin still afraid in some way of Mr. Navalny? Why give him the platform? Why give him time to give a lengthy speech in front of the Supreme Court? Why are we here talking about these very things? It's a good question. I don't think that he controls everything. Vladimir Putin believes that he can control absolutely everything because he can control his population and and their minds. He can't. I think the way this works is that for as long as you have people in any system, there will be ways to communicate. There will be ways to get the message out. And Navalny's message is simple and clear. As we move towards the so-called presidential elections on March 17th, when Putin will triumphantly declare himself president again, Navalny's message is, don't be afraid, live not by lies. Do not subject yourself to cynicism. Do the right thing. You don't need to be a hero. You don't need to go to jail. Just don't comply with the system. And the real thing is happening in the run-up to the elections. And Navalny has stripped down this so-called elections of any legitimacy, expose it for what it is. The time to act is now, not on the day when Putin will declare himself president again. Will it work? Are Mr. Navalny's sacrifices going to be worth it? Is this message landing? Jason, that's an impossible question to answer. At some point... I think the system will come down. We don't know when. When it does, we'll look back and say, well, this was obvious. You know, this was the crucial moment. This was the point of fracture. We don't know when this will happen. How effective it is will be only clear in 20, 30 years' time. Was this sacrifice worth it? But I think for Navalny and for a lot of other political prisoners in Russia today, that's not the question. They will continue to do what they think is right, not thinking about whether it's going to work or not. At some point, it will work. We just don't know when. And when it does, we'll look back and saying, mm, we recorded this on the third anniversary of Navalny coming back to Russia. There was only X number of days to go. We just don't know the X. Arkady, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. The latest episode of Netflix's Stranger Things features levitating bodies, shrieking monsters, and even an exploding rat. Tom Wainwright is our tech and media editor. It's received stellar reviews, but unlike the previous season, the show isn't being streamed onto TV screens and laptops, but performed instead live on a stage in London's Phoenix Theatre. Welcome to the first ever performance of Stranger Things, the first show. And it's not the only example of Tinseltown invading Theatreland. A few streets away, you'll find the Theatre Royal, where Disney offers a live version of Frozen. And another short walk will take you to the Adelphi Theatre, where there's a musical tribute to Back to the Future. 
Meanwhile, over in New York on Broadway, Amazon is getting ready to launch a musical of Transparent, which was a series first run on its Prime Video service. Hollywood's experiments on the stage are part of a broader shift by the movie business towards live experiences. We're seeing cinema attendance declining, and at the same time, studios are finding new ways to excite people and make money from their fans outside their homes. But this isn't a new thing, right? Disney's been doing exactly this kind of thing for years. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this is kind of a new take on an old playbook. Disney, as you say, drew up this diagram in the 1950s showing all the various interlocking parts of the business. It was the cinematic exhibition, the TV spin-offs, the theme parks, the merchandise. All of these things mutually reinforced each other. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. And after other studios saw the success that Walt Disney had had with this, they copied it. So Universal, for example, did something very similar with its theme parks, its toys, all the rest of it. And for some studios these days, these sidelines are more than just sidelines. They make a lot of money. So for Disney, for example, last year, its experiences division contributed $9 billion in operating profits. And just for comparison, its streaming division, which we hear so much about, lost a couple of billion dollars. So for some studios, it's huge. And as the cinema declines in in power, it's becoming more important still. The cinema obviously took a knock during COVID, but even since then, it's not back to normal. Just last year, box office takings estimated to be about 20% below where they were before the pandemic. And even before the pandemic, cinema attendance was in decline. And so it's interesting that studios are finding these new live alternatives to cinema. And so the new frontier here is just taking all this stuff to the stage. Well, actually, there's a lot more than that. And I mentioned theme parks earlier. Some studios are really doubling down on that. So, for example, Warner Brothers opened the world's biggest indoor theme park in Abu Dhabi in 2018. We recently saw Disney announce that it was going to double its investment in its theme parks and cruises over the next decade. Universal announced just last month that here in the UK, they've bought a huge plot of land, which could be its first theme park in Britain. So we've got that. And then other studios are doing different things. Warner, for example, opened a kind of interactive art experience in Cologne in December, which was all based on Harry Potter. It's called Visions of Magic. And it's a cross between an art exhibition and an experience. We're seeing more of these new live events. Universal has said that it's going to have an interactive horror experience in Las Vegas based on all its horror films. And some are even getting into food. So Warner Brothers has got various restaurants. There's one here in London called Park Row, which is a Batman-themed restaurant. I'm afraid I haven't tried it because the 10-course tasting menu costs £195. But they also have a slightly cheaper offering in Boston, which they opened in November, called Central Perk. Obviously, based on Friends, you can buy all kinds of merchandise there alongside coffee and sandwiches and all the rest of it. So there's a whole range of new things that studios are offering as possible alternatives to the declining cinema business. But when you talk about Disney and Universal and the like, those were movie studios and Netflix isn't. Yeah, I mean, Netflix does make movies, but you're right that it's in a slightly different class because it really only sells one thing, which is streaming subscriptions. You know, most Hollywood studios have this range of offerings from theme parks to merchandise and all kinds of spin-offs. Netflix is kind of a one-trick pony, a very, very successful one, but one which is very focused on one thing. And that now is showing some signs of changing. They're not going to do a Disney and start diversifying into theme parks, but they are doing all kinds of new things. And they started experimenting during the pandemic, actually, when they did a Stranger Things drive-through experience, which I think was not a huge hit. It's quite hard to do live events during a pandemic, but that was their first experiment. And since then, they've done all kinds of other things. They've done escape rooms based on Money Heist, one of their popular dramas. They've done Bridgerton Balls. 
They've got a new Squid Game experience in Los Angeles where it's just like being in the real Squid Game, except less chance of murder, I think. Our intrepid colleague Henry Tricks in Los Angeles had a go on our behalf and it did quite well. He came second, didn't win any money, also wasn't killed. Apparently it's fun. The pricing of these things is interesting. Disney prices its theme parks very much with an eye on the bottom line. They're huge profit centres for the company. Netflix seems not to be doing that. The pricing seems to be aimed at pleasing superfans. The Squid Game thing costs $39. Stranger Things tickets come for as little as £20, which by the standards of London's West End is pretty cheap. So I think for Netflix, this is more about exciting fans and getting people to really love their stories, their intellectual property, rather than being a big new profit pool, certainly for the time being anyway. Still, though, at the mention of intellectual property, all of this stuff before it can be an escape room or a cruise has to show on a screen, right? This is not going to replace the making of movies, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. As you say, it starts with the story. But I think that in Hollywood, there's kind of a lingering worry that it's hard to make mega popular franchises and get people to really love your stories and your IP without that cinema experience. And Netflix has got loads of really popular shows. Stranger Things is probably the most obvious example, but it's not the only one. But it's yet to come up with something like a Star Wars or a Marvel or a Mission Impossible. These series, these franchises, things like Star Wars in particular, have a kind of almost religious status among its fans. And people in Hollywood are just beginning to wonder whether it's possible to do that without the cinema. We probably all remember the first time we went to see one of these hit movies on a massive screen in a dark room with hundreds of other people. And people aren't yet sure whether you can quite get that same effect by just showing something on a television. I think that one motive behind these new live experiences is to see whether they are an alternative way of really exciting fans and audiences in an era when they're less likely to go to the cinema. Because what these studios want to do, they want to make popular shows, but really, above all, they want to make these super popular franchises like Star Wars, from which they can make endless money. And live experiences seem to be a crucial part of the jigsaw in getting fans really, really into their IP. Tom, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Competitive sports are all about winning. Oliver Jones is a news editor at The Economist. But not every team can be like the Los Angeles Lakers of 1971 to 72, who won an incredible 33 consecutive basketball games. Okay, the ball game's over. The Los Angeles Lakers continue their assault on the basketball record book. They win their 33rd in a row, and on the road they are 21 and 1. Not every tennis player will enjoy a spell like Martina Navratilova who won 74 singles matches in a row in the mid-1980s. No, some have to endure. Take the Cleveland Browns, an American football team. They were defeated 17 times in a row in both the 2015-16 and 2016-17 seasons. What a disappointing end to the Cleveland Browns offense. Mm. Or take Vince Spadia, 
he lost 21 tennis matches in a row after breaking into the sport's top 20 in 1999. Just trying to uh, keep the rallies as short as possible at the moment, Spade, yeah. Feel that these are the last few throws of a man that uh, is rapidly running out of oxygen. And in football, or soccer, there's American Samoa. The footballers representing the American Overseas Territory lost the first 38 games they played after becoming full members of FIFA, football's governing body, in 1998. A 31-0 loss to Australia, the biggest defeat in the history of international football, was a particular low point. All American Samoa could do was watch as Australia scored goal after goal. But their losing streak ended. That is the subject of a new film by Taika Waititi called Next Goal Wins. The qualifiers are only four weeks away, Mr. Rongan. All I want from our team is just one goal. One goal. It tells the story of Thomas Rongan, a Dutch-American coach appointed in 2011 to reverse the American Samoans' fortunes. He guided them to a 2-1 victory over Tonga that same year. By Mr. Waititi's telling, Mr. Rongan does so largely thanks to a sudden change in mentality. At half-time in the Tonga match, with the team heading towards another defeat, Mr. Rongan realises the error of his previously draconian ways. Just be happy, he implores his troops, who then march on to victory. A documentary about Mr. Rongan's exploits, however, released in 2014, painted a less sentimental picture. The real Mr. Rongan set out to find off-island players to bolster his ranks. They were American-based athletes who could represent the team by dint of their ancestry. He also enticed disenchanted but talented islanders out of retirement. Yes, he did introduce some stress-relieving techniques, such as meditation and yoga, but he did not compromise on his coaching methods. So, what can other teams suffering from losing streaks learn from American Samoa's footballers? Well, despite what the new narrative film depicts, just being happy is probably not enough. It was the better players and more experienced manager that likely helped more than the change in mindset. Spelling out the obvious is worthwhile, because a lot of the discussion around sporting streaks, whether involving winning or losing, often draw on fallacies. It's not just the film. A popular theory is that individuals or teams can alter their momentum through effort and positivity. The idea holds that the outcome of one match affects that of the next. So poor performances bring frustration and uncertainty, making further misery more likely. And success begets success. Sir Alex Ferguson, Manchester United's then-manager and one of football's most famed coaches, echoed the idea in 2011. Momentum is the key, he said. When you get that momentum, you become difficult to knock off your stride. But as much as sports fans and trainers are convinced about the mystical powers of momentum, scientists are largely dubious. A study published in 2021 investigated whether momentum could explain the development of losing and winning streaks in North America's National Hockey League. Game four of a four-game road trip for the Flames, they're two and one. Colin Blackwell stops on the dot, shoots, he scores! The researchers could not categorically rule out that success or failure in one performance directly affected the outcome of the next. But they concluded that, in general, streaks were statistically random. 
In sport, the role of luck should never be underestimated. Players can suffer injuries or fall out with coaches. Teams can play in a run of tricky fixtures. When these factors affect one side simultaneously, losing can begin to seem like fate, or even conspiracy. But misfortune is the probable culprit. That poses a dilemma for struggling teams. If the conditions that lead to a terrible streak can occur by chance, sometimes little can be done. No tweak to mindset, personnel or tactics is guaranteed to change outcomes. For suffering fans at least, the best response may be to try and enjoy the ride. After a season in which their team lost 16 matches and won none, some 3,000 Cleveland Brown fans enjoyed a self-deprecating parade around the ground to raise money for charity. Nick Hornby, a British novelist, described the surprising joy of watching a team in freefall in his memoir Fever Pitch. The book is mainly about his love of Arsenal, but in it he also details his affection for Cambridge United, a lower league team. In the 1983-84 season, they went 31 games without a win, but Mr Hornby's allegiance never weakened. In fact, he writes, a new drama began to replace the satisfaction of winning. Small incidents, a goal or an act of bravery from a player, became reasons for quiet, if occasionally self-mocking, celebration. And remember, streaks do end, eventually. The Browns squeezed out a tie with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And this year, they even secured a playoff berth after winning almost twice as many games as they lost in the regular season. After all, from the bottom, there's nowhere to go but up. Driscoll, he's going for it all. He's going for the end zone. Pass is caught. Touchdown, Browns. David Bell, his second TD of the year. Well, you got single high look. You know exactly where to go against single high outside. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Larniuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Kadifa, and our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane. We'll all see you back here tomorrow for the Weekend Intelligence, which goes on a deep dive into the largely overlooked early life of Winston Churchill. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.